Let's get started. I think it's really cool that all of you showed up tonight. It's cool to see such support from the community like that. Uh, I hope we can make it worth your while. So, <laughs> you take as much as is worth your while and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, to, to make it worth your while, we're going to start with a prayer. That always helps. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Jesus, we all come because you've touched our hearts. That's why all of us are here in this room. And we want to give our hearts more to you, like your mother did, which brought you to the world. Bless this presentation and let us get out of it what we're supposed to. Amen. Amen. So, first thing, we're going to start at the end. All day long you've been hearing us say, this is the first public liturgical celebration of the, of the sacred uh, or immaculate heart in history. So the goal of this presentation is to explain what that means. Um, maybe it's not public knowledge. And so what we're going to do is a history of the sacred heart. So that sentence tells you what we're lots of things we're not going to do. We're not going to trace the entire history. You, you don't want something comprehensive <laughs> at 7 o'clock at night. <laughs> And I don't want to be up here talking that long either, as much as I love this. Okay, so a history, just of the Sacred Heart. We're not going to trace the two hearts. We're just going to take the Sacred Heart. Um, and it's all going to be kind of supplemented with biblical references. So you can't go wrong with the Word of God. And if... Amen. amen. If you want to shout amen or hallelujah during any of this. Hallelujah. Preach so, if one slide here can deepen your relationship with the incarnate Word of God, our, our job is done. Anyway, so another perk is that you might be able to understand this a little better. It's in the oratory, right? A lot of us walk past it multiple times a day. You can't see it, but underneath there is the Sacred Heart. And this kind of tells some of the history, the theological history especially, of the Sacred Heart. Another thing you'll be able to do is comment on this book. Who's had Father Elred and got this book? Right? Right? Beautiful. Oh, it's good. But we're going to start by picking on it. You've got to have conflict in any story, right? So on page 226, this has a two-page spread on the Sacred Heart. And up at the very top, in capital letters, it says, this is a summary. Sacred Heart of Jesus is a focus for intense devotions to make reparations to Jesus for the sins of humankind. It also says, the modern form of the devotion derives in particular from the 17th century. Essentially, that's where the modern devotion starts. So, by the end of tonight, <laughs> You'll be able to know that it's really nice, but it's not exactly accurate. Um, the second point might be, the St. Margaret Mary Alicote is the, like, the most well-known promoter of the Sacred Heart. And from the 17th century, it spread like wildfire, and that's a beautiful thing. But 
in 19, in the 1950s, Pius XII, or maybe it was the 40s, wrote Coriatis Aquas, which was a whole encyclical just on the Sacred Heart. And he said, at the beginning, he, he, he picked on somebody too. He says, there are those who consider a devotion of the Sacred Heart as primarily demanding penance, expiation, reparation for the sins of mankind. And this is an entire a disagreement with the teaching that, that we preach when we approve the Sacred Heart. So what's it saying? This book summarizes the whole devotion by saying it's reparation for the sins of mankind, which can often be a, a passive activity that involves being alone in a room, praying all by yourself. And Pius XII says, no, the Sacred Heart can change your entire life. It can change the way you walk down the street. It can change the way you get pan dulce. <laughs> so, this was the moment in 1674 that most of the literature about the Sacred Heart that we know points back to the great vision when Margaret Mary Alicote, completely in love with our Lord, in an ecstasy, and, and in a vision, the third, the Jesus, third time Jesus had come to her, he comes very close and he says, look at this heart that has loved mankind so much, but has been so little loved by them in return. And that's really beautiful. And, and that is what pushed her into this, this mission of reparation for the sins of mankind. Because the, the Blessed Sacrament sits alone for so many hours of the day, we have to go at least the first Friday and spend an hour with him. And that's beautiful, and that we're not going to pick on. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, <coughs> Pop your turn. When did the devotion begin? Right? We, we, we know, we're going to know that it did not begin with Margaret Mary Alicote. Who says the 17th century? Show of hands. Okay. Nobody. Maybe Johnson. Who says the Renaissance? Patristic? We have some patristics in the back? Okay. Earlier? Earlier. Earlier. Really? You guys are daring. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, have you ever seen this picture of Francis de Sales? No. He's got a heart in his hand. And, and this is Jane de Chantal, and, and she's got a heart in her hand, too. These aren't the popular images, but it is a representation. There's this misconception that when Murray Murray Alicoke had this third great vision, it was the first time in history that the Sacred Heart had been seen. Right? It was a revelation. Behold this heart. This is the first mo But in fact, Margaret Murray Alicoke saw it every single day in the crest of the order that she had joined. Okay, so in 1610, this doctor of the church, Francis de Sales, founds the Visitation Sisters. And when he and, and Jane de Chantal were talking it out, he sends her this nice, nice, sweet letter. I think someone with a sweet voice should read it. Who wants to read it? If you agree, my dear mother, I think our coat of arms should be a single heart, pierced by three arrows, surrounded by a <coughs> This poor heart serving as the foundation for a 
something should jump out at you since we're all studying theology or getting ready to. This last sentence, does it remind you of anything? I mean, it, it's a patristic theme, in fact, that he's referring to. The concept that here's Eve being created from the side of Adam, and here's the church being pulled from the side of the new Adam on the cross. Right? This is something that Irenaeus and Origen talked about. Augustine talked a lot about it, too. And, and there's this the moment when his side was pierced, from his heart immediately gushed forth blood and water, which these, these patristic theologians clearly see as, as signifying the Eucharist and baptism. Um, so that's one part of his really gutsy statement by, by Francis of Sales. He's saying, well, when our order was founded, it was just like, just like this, actually. It's kind of gutsy. But it comes from something he talked about in his, his treatise on the love of God. The heart for Francis de Sales was the innermost center of a person. From the heart is where love comes, that's where the seat of the will is. Father Gerard told you some about this in the homily, right? Um, he got a lot of that from Augustine, in fact. But we're, we're going to leave things a little fuzzy here and, and move to scripture, right? This is our first foot planted in scripture that when the blood and water flowed from his pierced side this was the birth of the church in the sacrament and it's somehow tied to the fact that it came from his heart it didn't come from his head it didn't come from something he wrote it didn't come from a bureaucracy that he started that was a little Pope Francis okay so we're, we're actually going to prove Jonathan wrong, I'm sorry. So, Sacred <coughs> Heart actually had appeared to someone before Margaret Mary Alico. It was a Jesuit, St. Peter Cansius. He was in the presence of the founder, because it was that early in the career of the Jesuit. And as he was making his vows, the Sacred Heart appeared to him. And after an angel showed him all of his shortcomings, Someone else should read this book. But then, my divine Redeemer, you opened your heart to me and allowed me to plunge in my regard there. You invited me to draw from yourself the waters of salvation and commanded me to drink from your sacred fountain. I beg you to purify me, to clothe me with innocence and then baptism. Finally, bringing my burning. I dare to push my first and this divine I guess the baptismal fun got in the way. Um, Alright. What theological themes do we see? How about do you see the, the scripture quote? There's a point in John where Jesus stands up and cries out in a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. For from his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he was referring to the Spirit. That's what the quote says. Um, Carl Rahner actually did his doctoral dissertation on the connection between these two verses in the Sacred Heart. We have a, the, the heart being pierced. 
We have the heart as a source of living water, a source of grace, salvation and consolation, purification, right? So, so there's something about this heart that's the source of some kind of cool things, but we're going to leave it fuzzy still and, and move back a little further. Uh, Lansbridge the Carthusian has this quote about the sacred heart. He was the novice master and a, a spiritual writer, not a mystic. Right? The key distinction, a lot of people think that it has its roots in the, in the revelations to a mystic and that the mysticism and, and these ecstatic experiences are the only foundation. But this is a, a novice master, a theologian, you could say. I hope a theologian. All right, so, so he brings in another theme that we're going to add into our mix. Someone want to read the second paragraph? Carefully nourish a veneration for the heart of Jesus, this heart of goodness overflowing with love and mercy. You should burn with the desire to attach your heart to His, to plunge your spirit into His, and be absorbed. No, that last part's pretty powerful. Like, this is no small potatoes. We're not talking about something that, that only affects you when you're in your room by yourself. Right? To, to attach your heart to His, to plunge your spirit into His, and be absorbed, that's really radical. What it does is it touches, it, it plucks the string of, a string of effective theology. I'm sure there's probably a better name for this, and someone better trained in theology could talk more about it. But this, this theme of unity of will with Christ and the Father. He, Jesus says in, in John 17, I wish that they would be one as you and I, Father, are one. Right? There's a lot of very joining elements in the Sacred Heart's devotion. Jesus lets us rest our head on his, on his chest. This is Bernard of Clairvaux. He talks a lot about that in the 1100s. This strain of theology that says, look, we have this desire with this thirst for God, and he has an equal thirst for us. His desire matches ours. Um, these are some of the doctors of the church, in fact, that have talked about it. And almost every single one of them did a commentary on the Song of Songs. Kind of interesting. It's this, this erotic love poetry that tells us about the relationship between God and mankind. God's desire matching ours. Bonaventure was a key theologian in, in this strain of theology because he, he said, you know, the intellect is not the primary way to be communed with God. We commune with God primarily through our love and our will. I'm sure I might have phrased that a little wrong, but this, this idea that our heart is restless until it rests in you. Augustine was also a, a major foundation of this strain of effect, effective theology. So that, that kind of blew it up into a bunch of things. We're going to bring it back down into a, a small number of things. It, it comes down to unity with God and unity of will with the Father. Right? Jesus, I just put John 17 here because he says this like three, four times 
in that one chapter. And, and he talks about how I have come only to do the will of my Father. There's something with the unity of the heart of Christ with God. We're still going to leave it a little fuzzy. Who said, who said Middle Ages? Anybody? Okay. That was actually the heyday of mystical heart transplant. So, between the 13th and the 15th century, Jeanne de Valois, the Queen of France, had a, a mystical marriage with God, and, and Christ exchanged hearts with her. The one we know really well, the Catholic of Siena. I love how juicy this, this image is, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where Jesus came to her, reached into her chest, pulled out her heart, reached into his, and put his heart into her. Catherine Siena had this experience. John de Valois, um, Bridget of Sweden, and St. Lutgardis, a Flemish Benedictine, and the first apparition of the Sacred Heart in history. The first mystic, she also experienced this, ex this heart transplant. Um, but it's interesting that these people that had these heart transplants didn't know each other. She was in, in Rhineland. She was in Italy, Bridget of Sweden, the Queen of France. It seems like the Holy Spirit was at work. Um, but you can put in your, in your memory bank. 1246 was the day when the first mystic of the Sacred Heart passed away. It's the 1200s that we had the first. So here we get, this is where I, I hope it all starts coming together. We stop being fuzzy. Has anyone read this part of Ezekiel 3626? It's Old Testament, but it's so, I, it, it summarizes everything. It summarizes a lot, we'll say that, a lot of New Testament realities. I will sprinkle clean water on you, I will remove your hearts of stone, and put new hearts within you. I will put my spirit within you so you can walk in my statutes and keep my law. God was the one who came up with a heart transplant. He tells us in scripture that this is part of his promise to the people of God. He's going to open up his heart to us. And he's going to open up our hearts and put his love within us. His spirit. I will put my spirit within you. Here he was speaking of the spirit. There's this, this beautiful summary that you can pull out of it that we are one in the spirit, we are one. <laughs> but, but this idea that it was, it was the spirit that flowed out of the heart of Christ on the cross. It's the spirit that comes into our hearts at baptism. Our hearts are are, are, are almost replaced with the spirit. Kind of beautiful. So, who said, who said it starts in the patristic age? <coughs> who said earlier? Sorry, you guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, in fact, devotion to the Sacred Heart as the Sacred Heart started in the 13th century in the Benedictine or Cistercian, no one's sure whether it was Benedictine or Cistercian, but in a, a monastery 
with these three women, two of which were named Maxfield, and this girl's older sister was named Gertrude, so it gets very confusing. But <laughs> this was the golden age of, and, and the, the immersion of the Sacred Heart devotion as such. These women also experienced a mystical marriage. They also experienced a, a exchange of hearts. They also were ridiculously well-educated. They spoke German, Latin, Greek. They wrote philosophy. They, this one in the middle, Mechfield, was called the Nightingale of Hesse because she wrote hymns and poems that were ethereal. And they all gathered around this experience of, here's little baby Jesus, and, and these words here say, if you want to find Jesus, he is in the heart of Gertrude. This was kind of where, you know when you, you have a, a candle and you put it next to another candle and the flame gets bigger? <coughs> and you bring in a third candle and the flame gets bigger? That's, that's kind of what happened here. So the three of them shared their mystical experiences. They reflected on them with the benefit of their theological and philosophical background. They were in a monastery, so their full-time job, in fact, was to move with Christ and to pray and to worship and and Gertrude is called the first theologian of the Sacred Heart. We'll, we'll talk about that on the next slide. But they talk about the heart as the instrument of the Trinity. That's that's there's there's a lot there. They called it the furnace of love, the fornax amoris, which ended up being one of Saint John Hughes' favorite. Um, phrases. So we got to bring this to a close at some point, right? Let's let's start landing the plane. All right. We're going to recap the mystical experience of the Sacred Heart. There was kind of this latent version. We didn't talk about it, but a devotion to the Passion of Christ, to His wounds, and then to His side. It's like the camera kept zooming in farther. You know, there's this one way you can judge. Sorry. Um, so it was in the 1200s that we first saw the heart, and they talked about this transplant, they talked about the consolation, I can dwell in the heart of the Trinity. Then there's this strain of effective theology, which actually goes a long way back, right? The, this idea of, of the heart being the place where we commune with God, the heart is the center of the person. That's not a mystical experience, that's a theological concept developed by Doctor of the Church, Doctor of the Church, Doctor of the Church, Doctor of the Church. And and then it has its roots. There's some really deep roots in, in nuptial and Johannine themes in scripture. Origin talks about it, Irenaeus talks about it. And this picture is from this is a deacon from the town of Lyon where Irenaeus was bishop. In the year 177, he was being burned alive, and he said, well, these flames don't hurt me because the water from the side of Christ is flowing out and cooling the burn. So it, that's, that's, that's pretty direct. I don't know. It's interesting that in 177, the apostle, the, the disciples of Irenaeus, who was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by John, had this very joining, 
devotion to the water coming out of the side of Christ. Right? <sighs> Deep breath. How are we doing? How about we, let's launch into the St. John Youth part, which is like three slides, and then just open the whole thing up, right? So, this is a history of the Sacred Heart. What do we mean when we say St. John Eutes is the father, doctor, and apostle of liturgical worship of the hearts of Jesus and Mary? That was said at his beatification and his canonization. This devotion to the heart of Jesus as such stayed in monasteries, in fact, up until this guy, in fact, it was something that, that monks or nuns would, would reach in a moment of, of, of ecstatic prayer, but the lay people knew nothing about it. Um, and so it was St. John Hughes, in fact, who did all of this research, which summarizes all of that. He quotes all of these guys plus a whole bunch more. And he says, well, let's write a book about the heart of Mary and how it was transformed by the heart of Jesus. And, well, let's, let's learn a little bit more about it before we get there. 1601. This is an important part of, of who he is. He was a farm boy from Normandy who was trained in Beruz Oracle in Paris, right? Okay? So that's the, the conflict. The oratory was almost exclusively nobles. There were people who grew up being trained in fencing and horsemanship and the finest... And anyway. So for a farm boy from Normandy to end up in this group with them, he got access to all of the, the, the libraries that these nobles had for, for a farm boy just to be literate was a, a miracle. Anyway, and being Norman, he was very practical. <coughs> Beru's oratory was dedicated to restoring the glory of the priestly state and re-evangelizing a church that had forgotten what it meant to be Catholic. So he became a missionary preacher, and he preached 117 missions across France in his life. Each mission was about two months long, so you can add up how many years he spent preaching every day. Um, and... So, was he a systematic theologian? No. He never gave us a book saying, you know, here's Theology of the Sacred Heart. This is written, in fact, for other farmers, for the simple folk. It's, it's incredibly visual, it's, it's, but it's elegant and beautiful. It's poetry that you could preach to a church full of country bumpkins and they would come closer to God. Maybe that's why I have <laughs> So, he was also very, very concrete. Being a Norman, you're, you're, you're tactical, you're concrete. Let's get it done. But this was his theological insight to this whole list that, that we had before. He was the one that brought in a sword shall pierce your heart also. So, the heart of Jesus can be an image of all of these beautiful things happening. 
Mary is the example of the Christian because she united her heart so closely to Christ. Her desire for him matched his desire for her. And, and their heart became one so much that in that moment when his heart was pierced, hers was as well. And, and in fact, these verses, that's not me being smart either, this, these are ones that St. John used called to, to explain the theology of the Sacred Heart. This is the first reading for his Mass of the Sacred Heart. So, we, we have to land this. Okay? We get it. You guys don't want to be here all night. As beautiful as it is. Right, so 1648, he writes a booklet called Devotion to the Heart of Mary, and he gets permission to celebrate the feast that we celebrated today. He read the same readings we read today. He gave a homily that may or may not have been very similar to Father Gerard. <laughs> um, and, and he read the Office of Readings that we read this morning. He was the one that composed these, these liturgical celebrations that we've gone through today. And fun fact, the Diocese of, of Otan was where in 1649 a young nun named Margaret Mary Alicote was born. The, the feast continued to be celebrated in her home diocese every year as she was growing up. And in her breviary when she died, they tell us in her breviary when she died, she had a litany written by St. John Hughes to the heart of Jesus and Mary. Uh, okay, so 1672, he gets permission to celebrate the Feast of the Sacred Heart, the first Mass of the Sacred Heart. Why do you? In a Mass, you can give, you have a, a perpetual feast celebrated every year in the Church to give this treasure of theology to the laity. In 1673, Margaret Mary Alacoque had a vision where Jesus asked her to have a mass written to the Sacred Heart so the devotion could be spread. Jesus already had it taken care of. He had been used in his back pocket on the other side of France. And then in the last year of his life, he publishes, this is actually an abridged version, it's about three times the size, and this is the last chapter which was published separately at his the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So, for all the theologians we looked at, they talked about the heart. But he was the first one to actually sit down and say, okay, here's everything. Let's bring it all together. <coughs> let's, let's find out what it means for Joe Six back in Juana Corona, right? And, <laughs> and then, uh, in 1702, the Pope approved his three institutes. He founded uh, an order of priests, an order of nuns, and a order for lay consecrated people. And in each one of them he said, look, if you're going to have your heart transformed by the heart of Christ, here's what you got to do. When you wake up in the morning, say this. When you get dressed, think about that. Anyway, he was very, very practical. And that's how we got to land. <coughs> so, maybe now, when you look at the heart, <coughs> you can think about 
Christ reaching into his chest, pulling out his heart and giving it to you. Or maybe you're squeamish and you, you don't want to think about it. At the end of the day, if you can give your heart to Jesus more, that's, that's the best part. And I've, I treasure the things that I've read from here that have helped me. So that's why I'm really happy that we get to share a little bit of our spirituality with you. Amen.